Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to iHeartRadio Communities, a public affairs special focusing on the biggest issues impacting you this week. Here's Ryan Gorman. Thanks for joining us here on iHeartRadio Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman, and we have some great conversations lined up for you. In a moment, we're going to spend some time discussing World Mask Week, an initiative promoting the wearing of face masks to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19, and we'll also discuss the latest research on the virus. Also, despite the focus on the pandemic, our fight against cancer hasn't slowed down. I'll be joined by the American Cancer Society to discuss the work they're doing and what we know about how COVID-19 could affect someone dealing with cancer. To get things started, I'm joined now by Dr. Linda Vensel, Director of Global Health Security at PATH, a global nonprofit working to improve public health. PATH is a partner of the Pandemic Action Network. Dr. Vensel, thank you for spending some time with us. And let's start with an overview of what your organization does and how it came about. Okay, thank you very much, Ryan. Our organization has been around now for over 40 years, and um, we work uh, mainly in strengthening countries in the developing world, and um, we work in many different areas. I happen to be the director of Global Health Security, which um, started after the devastating Ebola outbreaks that occurred um, in West Africa. Um, I work across paths, and we're known to try and take um, innovation and also lots of um, things that we have and we take for granted sometimes in developing countries to make them affordable and appropriate for developing countries. So something like what we're experiencing now, the coronavirus pandemic, this is something you and your organization have been preparing for for quite some time, correct? Uh, Yes, that's very correct. The whole premise of global health security is that we wanted to strengthen countries and be more on the side of prevention. So strengthening their surveillance system to be able to detect new diseases, the laboratory, and how do you send samples from remote areas, um, and also emergency operating centers. We have helped to set up um, the emergency operating centers in Vietnam and also in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So when this started in, um, you know, we started to really pick up on the number of cases in January and February, I saw that this could be a major pandemic, and so um, started to really focus on getting countries prepared, especially in Africa and Asia. What's one of the biggest challenges that different countries across the world have in responding to a public health crisis like this current one, especially one that has the ability to potentially overwhelm healthcare systems? Uh, it is a very big challenge. And the, one of the things is a lack of equity uh, in different countries as far as what they can afford and what they actually have available in healthcare facilities. And so one of the things that we've been focusing on is infection prevention and control. It's something that we always talk about, water and sanitation, washing hands, but it's something that's really lacking in many countries. And so with PATH, um, we do a lot in actually training and education and also in providing different um, types of technology that can you know, disinfect and improve the water or the hand-washing sites um, in healthcare facilities. So that's one thing. But I think also it's just the ambiguity about 
what exactly is this virus? I think for, you know, all, I think we're getting a lot more evidence that, for example, wearing masks now that the Lancet study put together over 170 studies to show that it does make an impact. But I think um, that lack of specificity, you hear different messages from different people about, you know, what can you do to prevent this? How do you stay safe? And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges with communication and understanding this new pathogen. I'm joined by Dr. Linda Ventel, Director of Global Health Security at PATH, a global nonprofit working to improve public health. PATH is a partner of the Pandemic Action Network, and the website is PATH.org. This is obviously a brand new virus we're dealing with, but was there anything you were able to apply, any lessons learned from, say, the Ebola outbreak that's helped with the response to COVID-19? Yes, I think one of the main things that we learned from the Ebola outbreak is the quick spreading of rumors. And once you lose uh, community trust, then it's very difficult to get back on track. And so I think giving um, honest and precise answers like we've seen with Dr. Fauci and with CDC, telling the public and keeping them up to date on the statistics being, you know, transparent parent and straightforward and then also giving people hope that you know there is going to be a vaccine that we're working very hard to get that um, moving as quickly as possible and that there is serious funding to back that up and um, I think that we will have a vaccine um, by late or early next year but in the meantime until we do have that what we know are that there's public health messages that need to get out and we need the community to be involved. Are there other areas of the world that you're more seriously concerned about? Because unfortunately, with a global pandemic like this one, what happens in one place can end up impacting others. Oh, absolutely. I would say India is a country that is a very densely populated uh, country, obviously. And um, you see a rise um, in other illnesses that are impacted now by, you know, the lockdown or not being able to do routine immunization. So I used to work a lot on polio eradication, and I see that now we're at risk of um, having uh, another outbreak, for example, of polio and measles, other vaccine-preventable diseases. But it's just also just the slums are so dense and it's just a very challenging place to have a lockdown. And it's um, people, their livelihood is day-to-day and selling things and stuff. So I think it's very challenging for governments like that. And then also I used to live in um, Latin America, in Bolivia and Brazil. And if you see Brazil is one of the countries with the biggest rising number of cases. And I think that has to do with the after effects of, um, you know, having Mardi Gras and, and, you know, different places where people gather. And, you know, that's a, a big part of the culture there. So it's very hard to change some of those habits. So those are two places in particular where it's not any fault or picking out that government, but I think that it's just challenging given the circumstances and the general nature of um, social gatherings. I'm joined by Dr. Linda Vancell, Director of Global Health Security at PATH, a global nonprofit working to improve public health. PATH is a partner of the Pandemic Action Network. One thing we're seeing right now, because this coronavirus has been so disruptive to our everyday lives, it's also leading to other public health issues. Can you talk a little bit about the unintended consequences that are happening as a result of some of the measures that we've had to take to slow the spread of the virus? Oh, sure. I think that uh, one of the things is because of social distancing, a lot of um, programs uh, rely on people having close contact or visiting homes, um, even for high-risk pregnancies and for um, uh, routine immunization. A lot of people don't come to the clinic, so people go to seek um, the children in their 
uh, locations, but that's not possible now in a lot of places. Or people are afraid to even let in a healthcare worker into their home because um, of the fear that they might contract um, corona. So we're seeing an increase in vaccine-preventable diseases like yellow fever in Africa, um, polio, as I mentioned, and measles. But I also think um, malaria is one that we're very focused on. And actually, at PASC, we're working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to strengthen emergency operating centers, but also strengthen the work that's been done on malaria so we don't go backwards, which is, you know, a very big killer of kids and even uh, adults um, in Africa and other areas of the world. Earlier, you mentioned the research that shows the effectiveness of face masks in our effort to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. We're in the middle of World Mask Week, which continues through the 14th. Everyone can find out more about that at worldmaskweek.com. Tell us about this initiative and why it's so important. Thank you. Um, World Mask Week, I think, is very important just to raise the consciousness of uh, policy and decision makers to um, have there be one united message uh, across the world that it doesn't matter where you're coming from or what socioeconomic status you're in or anything, everybody should be doing this. This is actually something you're protecting the people. It shows your care for others. And also by others wearing it, it shows their care and not wanting to even be, um, you know, there's a word asymptomatic. There's a lot of people that can carry this virus and they really don't have symptoms of feeling very sick, but they actually can spread the virus. So by wearing a mask, you're actually reducing that probability that you're going to pass it around to other people. And if we can reduce that probability, we're going to reduce the chance that that virus can spread more and cause more deaths and more cases. So it's really important that everybody does it. And if we do it all together for a period of time, I think it can have a big impact on the trajectory of the number of cases. And uh, Lancet has published a study that looked at over 170 different um, uh, works that have been done to show this with healthcare workers and in other studies. And also the National Association of American Scientists have also backed this up. So it's really backed up by some serious science. And just to follow up on that point, there certainly seems to be an overwhelming scientific consensus that face masks do help slow the transmission of this coronavirus. But if you can clarify Is the theory still that face masks predominantly protect others rather than the person wearing them? Sure. I think the first premise is that you are protecting others because if you sneeze or there are droplets that you are emitting into an indoor space, for example, um, you are preventing that from, you know, getting out and spreading to other people. And the science behind that is that's why they say six six, um, feet is that, you know, that's about I don't think anybody can sneeze (laughs) with droplets going out much further than that. But also, I think by wearing it, there's been enough evidence to show that you are actually protecting. It's not like you're wearing, uh, you know, industrial face masks that people use in laboratories, but it does reduce the chances that those aerosolized droplets that you're going to also inhale them. One thing also that I wanted to mention is I think that the creativity and more information on what is an appropriate face mask is something that also with this um, week we can promote. And some of the things that I've seen that have been very creative have been sometimes people don't like it that, you know, you can't see a full face or it seems like something that looks kind of scary or sinister. And people have been trying to lighten it up a little bit with face masks that are a little bit, um, you know, showing different person's personality. I've seen transparent ones where you can still see the whole face. So I think that it's bringing out some creativity and to this that um, will also help in public health during this crisis. 
Again, you can find out more about World Mask Week at worldmaskweek.com. Right now, I'm joined by Dr. Linda Vensel here on iHeartRadio, Director of Global Health Security at PATH, a global nonprofit working to improve public health. PATH is a partner of the Pandemic Action Network. One thing that's top of mind for a lot of Americans right now is the reopening of schools. We've been seeing more and more research on how COVID-19 spreads among younger populations. What are your thoughts on that research and how it may apply to the reopening of schools? Well, I think some of the research has shown that, you know, while older people are more susceptible and have a higher mortality rate, it still is very unclear that um, children, young adults, um, and you see the increase in the, the rate in young adults can uh, become infected with the virus and they can spread it to other family members or to other children. And we've seen even lately that there's been some summer camps where there was a tremendous spread of uh, the coronavirus to other children and they had to shut it down. So I think there's quite a bit of evidence that it's a risky um, thing. You have to be very mindful, I think, if you're going to open up schools that you actually follow all the precautions because the schools will open before we have a vaccine. And even if we have a vaccine, that usually vaccines are not 100% efficacious. So I think that you have to look at the risk-benefit. I know that there's a social aspect of kids being together, and I think it's really hard for kids to not be able to be in their natural environment um, in a school. But I think that um, it's quite a risky thing, and it needs to be thought through, and there's the preparations to make sure that there's a proper distancing and all that needs to be done very, very carefully. Final question for you. It seems like almost every week we're learning something new about this virus. Are there any developments that you've seen recently that really stand out to you as extremely significant? Oh, absolutely. One of the biggest things that they've seen when they've done autopsies is that there's this tremendous amount of blood clotting so that this virus actually creates a, a hyper you know, um, immune effect. And so I think that um, that's something that we need to look whether there are some other medical countermeasures that can prevent that kind of clotting earlier when we're trying to treat patients. So that's one thing that I think is very important. And then what are the overall risk factors in, you know, um, there are certain things people that have, um, are overweight or have, uh, are prone to um, heart disease should be, um, I think, thought of as high-risk groups. So we're learning more and more almost every day. It's amazing how much science is coming out. Dr. Linda Vensel, Director of Global Health Security at PATH, a global nonprofit working to improve public health. PATH is a partner of the Pandemic Action Network, and you can find out more at PATH.org. Dr. Vensel, thank you for taking the time to have this discussion with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, and I hope you'll wear your mask today. Finally, I'm joined here on iHeartRadio by Dr. Laura Makaroff, Senior Vice President for Prevention and Early Detection at the American Cancer Society. Dr. Makaroff, thank you so much for your time. And let me start here. I think this is certainly an organization that just about every American has heard of, but many might not know exactly what it is that you do. Can you give us an overview of the mission and the work done by ACS on a day-to-day basis? Oh, sure. Um, first, it's so great to be with you today. Thanks for having us. Um, so the American Cancer Society, we are a nationwide community-based voluntary health organization really dedicated to eliminating cancer as a major health problem. We have our global headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, and regional and local offices throughout the country really to ensure that we have a presence in every community. You know, our mission really is um, to save lives, celebrate lives, and lead the fight for a world without cancer, and we do that um, um, in lots of different ways. 
Obviously, everyone is always hoping a cure for cancer is discovered. And I know there's been considerable progress on treatments and prevention. Research in all of those areas is a huge part of what the American Cancer Society does. Can you give us a general sense of how much of an impact that research has made over the past few decades? Uh, sure. You know, certainly um, groundbreaking research is a big part of what we do um, at the American Cancer Society and a lot of what happens with lots of other partners across the country. Um, but there's other things um, that we do as well to impact um, this fight against cancer, which includes um, everything from addressing prevention, early detection, through um, reducing tobacco use and screening, to helping people who are in active treatment um, maintain access to the best and highest quality treatments, as well as helping people in their survivorship um, and then end of life if that becomes part of the cancer journey as well. You know, as far as sort of progress in our fight, um, we continue to see steady declines in cancer mortality um, across the country, although there remain really significant and disturbing disparities um, that impact certain subpopulations of our, of our nation. That includes black-white disparities, where we know that black women are more than 40% um, more likely to die of their breast cancer than their white counterparts, and then disparities that span socioeconomic status, um, as well as other um, races and ethnicities um, and also like populations, including the LGBTQ population where we see significant um, disparities. So lots of work remains, although we are making good and steady progress towards our overall mortality reduction goals. I'm sure there's no simple answer to this next question, but as best you can answer it, what makes cancer such a challenge? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think a, a couple things you know, that I would say on that. So what makes cancer such a challenge is that we are continue to learn so much about it and that there's a lot of different cancer types, a lot of different areas of the body that cancer can impact. So it's a, it's a broad um, disease overall. Um, and each different cancer type has its own unique um, characteristics, its own risk factors, and then its own treatment challenges. The other thing I would say is that cancer... Um, is a disease that can affect everybody, but it's not something that affects everybody equally. And that remains another big challenge for us when we think about health equity and the importance of ensuring um, all people have equal opportunity um, to prevent, treat, and survive cancer. I'm joined by Dr. Laura Makaroff, Senior Vice President for Prevention and Early Detection at the American Cancer Society. You can find out more at cancer.org. One thing I've heard over and over again from different cancer research organizations I've talked to is that there's a bit of a gap in funding for pediatric cancers as opposed to cancers that largely impact adults. Is that true? And why would that be the case? Yeah. Um, so I, there is some disparity in the amount of research investment um, really across a lot of different um, areas, which includes the amount of research um, directed at adults versus children. Um you know, as far as like the reasons for that, I don't think there's any one reason. Um, there's lots of reasons, including just where where we have funds available that can come from both um, federal sources as well as independent sources like ourselves. Um, and then as well as, you know, we're really, I would say that in pediatric cancer, we've been learning so much um, more even recently. And so it just continues to be an area um, where we need more growth um, to be able to continue that investment and recognize the need for ongoing um, research in pediatric cancer as well as adult cancers. I know you've been overseeing the American Cancer Society's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Talk a little bit about how this has disrupted your work and what cancer patients and cancer survivors should know. 
Sure. Yeah, that's really a really important question. And certainly um, these times that we're in really demand that we recognize and respond to the impact of the COVID pandemic on people who are um, actively fighting cancer and cancer survivors. Um, And I would say the impact of this pandemic um, is really far reaching. You know, everything from risks of infection, the overloaded healthcare system, um, shortages of supplies and or even shortages of food at home or economic challenges really creating um, unique and challenging barriers um, for people and families and communities impacted by cancer. So a couple of things I'll say on what, what we're doing. Um, so we're working really hard to understand the impact of this pandemic that comes on everything from our research activities as well as on the advocacy side. Early on in the pandemic, we um, fielded the survey of cancer survivors um, to really get a sense of how the pandemic was impacting um, cancer survivors and um, people actively fighting cancer. And what we learned in that early on is that 27% of patients who were in active treatment reported a delay in treatment of up to two weeks. Um, I think we're seeing some of that rebound now, and we have more survey findings coming um, as we as the pandemic has been wearing on. But but the important part of what we're learning and what we are hearing from our um, patients and people that we serve is that the impact of this pandemic is really far-reaching. It's impacting access to care, ability to feel safe in the healthcare system, um, and we're really working with patients and families to recognize um, the importance of continuing to get care in this time and to work with their healthcare teams to make sure that that care is provided in a safe way. I'm joined by Dr. Laura Makaroff here on iHeartRadio. She's the Senior Vice President for Prevention and Early Detection at the American Cancer Society. Do we know how much of an added risk either having cancer or having fought and survived cancer is for someone if they were to get infected with COVID-19? Would they be put into that vulnerable category? Yeah, so we're certainly learning learning so much. Um, what, we, what we do know is that people who are in active treatment and certainly people um, with advanced cancers um, have a much higher likelihood of facing complications from COVID, including um, death. The people in active treatment that with cancer that's progressing have been shown to have a five-fold more likely chance to die from COVID-related complications than, than those who are not in that same state. So the risk is really great. The good questions you're asking about the impact on people who are not in active treatment with cancer or may have other, um, other parts of their cancer journey, earlier diagnosis or different stages, earlier stages, you know, we're still learning so much. What we can say is that the immuno, immune compromise that happens with cancer really puts people with cancer in that vulnerable group. And we want to do everything we can um, to help protect people with cancer, which would include maintaining um, physical distance and social distancing as needed. Um, wearing a mask in public, that's, that is one of the best things we can do to help um, protect people with cancer, as well as you know, frequent hand washing, I'm using hand sanitizer when that's not available, but really those simple things um, are going a long way as we reduce the spread um, of the coronavirus. Earlier, you had mentioned early detection as being a significant part of our progress in dealing with cancer. One of the many ways this pandemic has disrupted life is the reluctance of some to go to a doctor or a hospital for treatment or testing. How concerned are you about a potential lack of early detection for some people right now? And when may we see the consequences of that inaction? Yeah, another really, really important um, topic. Um, and certainly, you know, part of our um, 
progress towards um, reducing cancer mortality has been because of screening and early early detection. So the delays in screening and early detection are really concerning to us. Um, early on in the pandemic, we saw screening rates um, drop really significantly. Some studies reported up to 85 or 90 percent drops in screening in colorectal, um, breast, and cervical cancer. Um, we're seeing now that some of those numbers are um, rebounding, um, and people are able to return to screening in some places, but still not not nearly at the level that we were pre-pandemic. Um, the important part I would say is this: is that um, recognize that cancer screening is still important. We don't want people to forget about the importance of their cancer screening. Um, how to do that in this time is really something you need to talk with your healthcare provider about. Um, and that depends on your individual risk factors, your previous um, screening history, and where you are um, with the screenings that are due for you. So for example, um, for women who may be over age 55 and older and have had um, normal mammograms in the past year and have no other risk factors for breast cancer, it may be okay to postpone screening until next year. Leading organizations, including ours, have breast cancer screening guidelines that, that recommend average risk women over age 55 can have a mammogram every two years. So there is some flexibility with screening. Also important to recognize that um, there are other options available for other screen, screening tests like colorectal cancer, where there are safe take-home options available um, and those are good discussions and good questions to bring um, to your healthcare provider to talk about how to stay safe and um, not forget your cancer screening. I'm joined by Dr. Laura Makaroff, Senior Vice President for Prevention and Early Detection at the American Cancer Society. Another consequence of this pandemic is funding issues, the scaling back or canceling of events meant to help raise money for these types of causes. What has the impact been like on the American Cancer Society? I mean, the work that you're doing is so important. And unfortunately, just because we're dealing with this coronavirus, that doesn't mean that our battle with cancer has let up. Yeah, um, that it's, it's really, um, like I said, the COVID pandemic is impacting all of us in, you know, in really far-reaching ways. That goes for um, people with cancer as well as our organization. Um, so we're seeing that impact and really um, you know, having, having some difficulty in being able to provide the services and continue our research because we've seen such a big dramatic um, decline in fundraising and um, what people are able to, to give. Um, we're seeing some, some positive signs too. This isn't all, all negative. Um, we're doing everything we can to be creative and innovative in the ways that um, we look at fundraising and the ways that we are um, organized and how we're doing our programming to help the most people that we can um, in everything we do. Um, so we're really working hard um, to address these really significant challenges that we're all facing. Again, the website is cancer.org. When it comes to adjusting events to our new reality, you usually have the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Walk each year. This year, it's going to be a virtual event, and the nationwide kickoff for it is coming up on the 11th. Everyone can find out more information about that at makingstrideswalk.org. Tell us a little bit about the event and how that walk has become such a big part of the American Cancer Society. Yeah, so Making Tries Against Breast Cancer is um, one of our big events, and we do lots of different um, events throughout the year. And historically, our events have been large in-person gatherings. They've been really about bringing people together to, to join our fight um, and to do this together and really make an impact against cancer. But this year, because of the pandemic, things look a little different. Um, but what I can tell you is that our passion to end breast cancer really remains unyielding. Um, the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer events um, have always been more than a walk. It's really been a movement. 
And it's a movement that we need you um, and others um, out there to join now more than ever. So this year, um, we've made the decision to transition the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer event to a fully virtual venue this year. Um, We will have our inaugural nationwide kickoff on Tuesday, August 11th really inviting past and current participants, um, any team leaders, sponsors, and supporters to join the event, and we'll use um, new technologies and innovation to really replicate the magic of the Making Strides events while also maintaining a safe distance. One more time, the nationwide kickoff for the virtual Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Walk is coming up on the 11th at noon Eastern. You can find out more at makingstrideswalk.com. Dot org. Plus, there's going to be a number of other events associated with the walk coming up over the next couple of months. Dr. Laura Makaroff, Senior Vice President for Prevention and Early Detection at the American Cancer Society. Dr. Makaroff, thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You know, cancer hasn't stopped and neither have we. And with your help and lots of others out there, we'll really give hope the advantage and we're looking forward to working together. As we wrap things up, I want to offer a big thanks to all of our guests and, of course, to all of you for listening to iHeartRadio Communities. Again, the two organizations highlighted this week were PATH and the American Cancer Society. You can find out more about PATH at PATH.org, including some really important and helpful information on the coronavirus pandemic. And then you can find the American Cancer Society at cancer.org and information about the making strides against breast cancer walk including a link for you to participate is at makingstrideswalk.org if you want to hear previous episodes of this show we're on iHeartRadio. just search for us at iHeartRadio communities and you can also find me on social media at ryan e gorman we'll be back same time same place next weekend stay safe Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.